Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Second chapter of the book of Acts. And my goal this morning is to not knock over any trumpets, all right? We're going to be talking today and continuing our uh, study of what it is that the Lord has called us to when He has called us. My uh, belief and what I think Scripture teaches is that we are all called by the Lord. They're not special people that are called and those that aren't, that we're all called by the Lord, and that when we accept the invitation into relationship with Him, that there are certain things to which God has called us in order to follow Him. Last week we talked about the first thing was to give the Lord glory, to worship Him, to live our lives in a way that uh, pleases the Lord, that gives honor and glory unto the Lord. And today we're going to talk about what is a second thing that we're called to, and that is we're called to community, to living life together with another group of believers who help us to be accountable for what we're doing, that help us to grow in our knowledge of ourselves and of the Lord, that help us to move forward into life that is really abandoned to Him. I was uh, reading this week about uh, a series of videos that, that used to exist or were thought about, discussed. I, I tried to see if I could find them but I just read this little snippet about them. And the idea behind it was that they were going to find an authority in every subject matter they could think of and make a video for it. And they were going to call it Lessons from the Master, and then they were going to allow that person to give you life lessons. Uh, For instance, some of the names that were mentioned were um, in golf, uh, finding a way to get Tiger Woods. Now, Now, Tiger's game hasn't been near as good lately. But getting somebody like that to tell you the secrets to being a great golfer in coaching. There were discussions of trying um, to, to, this was three or four years ago, to get John Wooden to give some tips. And so it, it was this series that was going to be about that. And, and I, I began to think about the fact that, that as believers, we talk a lot about the fact that Jesus was the master teacher, the greatest teacher. Even people who aren't followers of Jesus, who aren't Christians would uh, sometimes acknowledge the greatness of the teaching ministry of Jesus. But I got to thinking about the fact that when we come to community, we rarely think about Jesus being kind of the authority on community. We go to the book of Acts, or if we are kind of Old Testament driven, we go back to the nation of Israel and talk about what God established there. We go to Acts, or we go to Paul, or we go to one of those that talk about it. And so today, and I know I had you open to Acts, and so this is going to seem a little strange at the beginning. I want to think about what did Jesus teach the apostles about community that they then lived out in the book of Acts? Because the reality is, in Acts chapter 2, we're going to read in just a moment an amazing statement about what the community that first established itself after Pentecost was all about. And what we have to understand is, these are guys that are just a few days removed from receiving their final instructions from the Lord. And so whatever they put into place were things that had to come from Jesus, and we're going to talk about ways that He instructed them in that way, but I want to find out some lessons about what it means to be and community. It tells us in Scripture that, that Jesus um, 
came and, and gathered these 12 men around him and that his goal was to extend his movement and his dream beyond himself, that he had come for a short time and a significant time and that his job, if you will, his purpose, if you will, was to come and to purchase our freedom on Calvary, then to rise from the dead and defeat sin and death and the enemy. And in order to proclaim that, he needed these 12 guys to go out. He didn't form an army. He didn't get a university together. He didn't get a corporation or endow a foundation. He started a group of people that would become known as the ones who were called out. The called out ones. In the New Testament, when the word church is translated, what it really comes from is a word that means to be called out. To be different. To be the ones that the Lord has called and has separated from in order to extend His message. He settled with 12 guys and then this was His plan. He waited until he was around 30 years old to start his plan. But his plan was he gathered these 12 guys around them. And then his plan was that he would live life with them for three years. Somebody has called it the be with them plan. He understood that that our lives are changed in the midst of being together with people that are seeking the same thing and trying to follow the Lord. And so his goal was to teach as he lived this life together. They would learn together, study together, pray together, argue together, forgive together, and Jesus would be with them. When they tried to serve God, Jesus would be with them. When they failed, he would be with them. When they were sick, he would be with them. When they were discouraged, When they were confused, he would be with them to help. Be with them to celebrate when they had something to do right. Be with them to clean up the mess when they got things wrong. His goal was to be with them and to develop them into this community. And we get to the book of Acts. And this original group of people from the called out ones, it's almost like in Acts chapter 2, after Pentecost, they get it. You've got your Bibles open to Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at the end of that chapter. Verses 42 through 47. And it tells us in verse 42 right away, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Now, fellowship is one of those words. I didn't even use it today, even though I could have in what we're called to. I use the word community because fellowship is one of those words that's gotten um, cheapened in our day. Fellowship has come to mean potluck dinners or modestly attended events on Sunday night at a church. We're going to have a Sunday night fellowship. Or our class is going to have a women's fellowship. And we've cheapened what that word means. In reality, the word fellowship here in verse 42 is a fabulous word that has uh, describes the people who are doing life together. Laughing, weeping, celebrating, sharing, serving, giving, receiving... All of that. And so when it says they gave themselves to fellowship, don't imagine that one of them had the macaroni and cheese to bring. They broke bread together every day. And to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. Many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. 
They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. If you read in the book of Acts, you will find that Jesus' be with plan gets translated to the apostles in Acts. You see these communities, these clusters, these churches, if you will, meeting together, sharing together. They address letters to groups of people. The idea was that you uh, you didn't have uh, huge, you didn't have, it seems, huge churches in the New Testament, although they definitely got together for huge gatherings. You had different groups of people meeting on a continual basis. They met in the temple courts. They met in homes. They met different places throughout society. The basic plans was that they just changed. I mean, they were with each other, and that hasn't changed. It didn't sometime in history the Holy Spirit said, okay, well, we're going to change directions now. We're going to switch things up and start a different way. The idea is that the church is still part of the be with plan. And that if we are going to be the church that God has called us to be, it means that we are continually living life together with one another. Now, I just want to point there's, there's lots you can get into in this. And I, I just want to point out from Acts chapter 2 and then looking back at what Jesus kind of did and demonstrated for them, three things that a great church will do or be. And the first thing is this. In a great church, people are devoted to each other and they will pay a significant price to do life together. The text says they devoted themselves to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to each other. Now, the truth is, these ragtag group of 12 guys could have only gotten that idea of devoting themselves to one another from the Lord. You know what's interesting about what Jesus did and getting his followers is that in that day and time, Jesus was considered a rabbi, a teacher. And he wasn't the only rabbi. There were lots of rabbis. And rabbis, as a rule, did not invite people to join them. They did not go out to the community and say, hey, I'm a rabbi. I need you to follow me. They waited for other people. And the reason was that rabbis considered themselves to be too high on the social ladder to invite other people. Now, contrast that with what Jesus did. We don't see a single person of their own will out of those apostles flocking to Jesus. We see Jesus inviting them. Now, here's the amazing thing about the group of people he invited. He invited a group of people that shouldn't be together. I mean, they weren't smart or rich or powerful or influential. These weren't the movers and shakers in society. No. Peter was impulsive, right? Thomas was a doubter. Judas was greedy. James and John were ladder climbers. There was a man named Simon who was a zealot and he hated tax collectors. And there was a man named Matthew who was a tax collector and he hated zealots. I can guarantee that one of the biggest questions asked around that group of 12 was as Jesus kept inviting people in, they go, now why did he invite him? Part of what's going on here is Jesus is teaching that churches called out once, communities 
are places where you don't just get to be around people that are healthy and beautiful and normal. They learn to love each other in spite of their differences. Because the truth is, in community, you find out that you get to love people just as junked up and sinful and messed up as you are. Experts in small group life have determined that the biggest factor in killing small groups or communities or people that are trying to live life together is not busy schedules or doctrinal disagreements. It's what they call extra grace required people. People that talk a little much. Someone who doesn't get it, isn't smooth, doesn't have the right political party on their back uh, bumper. Someone reminds you of a relative that you wish you weren't reminded of on a regular basis. And every group has what Rick Warren would call EGRs. Now he says, Rick Warren also says this. He says, by the way, if you get in a room and you say, I don't see any EGRs here, guess what? You're it. Now, the point of that is to say that Jesus put together a group of 12 EGRs. Extra grace required people. And the truth is, if we're honest with ourselves, we are all there at some point. And he gets these 12 groups of guys together. And he puts them around the tables. And he walks with them daily. And he ministers with them. And they had never been loved like they were loved in that place. They were never supported like they were supported in that place. And then, on the night before he dies, Jesus gets down and does something that they've never had anybody of his position do. And he washes the feet of this ragtag bunch of guys that should have never been together. And here's what they discover that they had never experienced anything like what they experienced in those three and a half years with Jesus and with each other. In a great church, people are devoted to each other and they will pay a significant price to do life together. Now, there are a couple of things in that statement you need to understand. First of all, in order to do life together, it will require a significant price. But you need to understand that it is absolutely worth it. What is sad in churches across America where divisions or conflicts kind of fester and exist is they don't even realize by an attacking other people within their own congregation, they're not only hurting the work of the church, but they are destroying a community that they vitally need. Do you realize that recent studies show that this generation is the loneliest generation in the history of America? I read a quote today from a guy that plays Second Life. Or this was from a few years ago. I don't even know what Second Life is, but it's an online community where you develop your own personality and you have your own, you develop what you look like. You can buy stuff there. And what he said is, what is amazing about Second Life is you can get on there and literally connect with anybody anywhere in the world. And you don't have to worry about being constrained to where you are. And it is for the first time I have found a group of people that understands me. Now, the truth is that may be true. 
But the reality also is he's not really living in a community online. Now, I'm not saying that online communities can't be helpful, but we need each other in a physical location. And when you begin to tear down what God has established as the place to do life together, you tear down the very thing you need in this life to move forward. One of the things that I I get the privilege to be a part of as a pastor is to see when people have very difficult moments in their lives. And those people are a part of a vibrant, small group of people that are helping them to live life together. And it is an honor as a pastor to see people just envelop them with love. One of the sad things I get to see as a pastor sometimes is people who have disconnected themselves from small groups or accountability or Sunday school classes or church. And then tragedy strikes and they don't have that kind of support group around them. A great church, people are devoted to each other. They are a part of the Be With plan. And they will pay a significant price to do life together. It says they were devoted. The word devoted there means that they gave what they could. They did all they had to. They made sure it worked. They were devoted to the fellowship. Here's the second thing that we need to understand. That a great church is a safe place to get real with people. Or a safe place to be sincere with people. Acts chapter 2 says this. That they broke bread. This is in verse 46. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. The word sincere there is an interesting word. There's an old story about its origin. I'm not sure the word I actually derived this way, but it gives a picture of the meaning. The word sincere literally means seen, which is without, and sere, which means wax. So it means without wax. Okay, that's what the word means. The Romans apparently prized ancient Greek statues. Romans came after the Greeks. They prized their statues. Oftentimes, those centuries-old statues would become cracked or chipped. Sometimes, sellers would take wax and they would pour it into the cracked areas to cover up the flaws, to make the statue look better than it really was. If you found one of those, you bought it, a covered-up statue, you were disappointed when you found out it had been covered up. But if the statue were authentic, and there was no attempt to hide the flaws, then it would be labeled sincere, without wax. We have in this passage a group of people that were sincere with each other. Now, where did they get that? Well, they got it from their leader, Jesus, who was so unusual. Whatever was going on to him, they found out about. When he was sad, they saw him cry. When he was tired, they saw him sleep. When he was troubled, they heard him say, My soul is troubled. My sorrow is overwhelming me. They heard him say, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. I've called you friends. For everything you learned from my father, I've made known to you. Jesus was the most transparent human being they had ever been around. He talked a lot about people, especially religious people, how they try to look good on the outside, but yet there was a lot of stuff hiding inside their hearts. Jesus said, that's not what we're about. We're going to be with one another in reality. No posturing. They must have loved being part of that community with him. One of the greatest things I love about marriage 
is that you can be whoever you are without wax with somebody else. No makeup, no shower, mismatched clothing, right? I thought about this a couple of Sunday afternoons ago, and when I leave here on Sunday afternoon, I'm pretty wiped out. Uh, here early, so you know, I give what I can to these moments, and I'm pretty worn out. We get we get lunch, and we try to get the kids, and then I just want to relax for about the hour and a half I have before I have to think about coming back. A couple of Sundays ago, I was sitting there with a remote in hand. There was a basketball game on. And I realized I was wearing a plain T-shirt, neon green gym shorts, and blue dress socks pulled up to my knees. My first thought was I look like my dad. And then I realized I am becoming my dad, right? There was a time about four or five years ago when I would not have stepped out of the house with that kind of get up on at all. But on this particular day, Misty needed to go outside and I didn't care anymore. And you know what I love about that? Susan didn't come in there and go, you have got to change your clothes. Now, she may have thought that. She didn't say it. I love the emotional honesty that comes from being with somebody for 13 years almost now. And you don't have to feel like you got to impress them. It's just sincere. She knows more about my flaws than I do. But it's never an issue of trying to impress her anymore. That doesn't mean that we don't dress up sometimes and go out and look nice. But it just means that we're okay with who we are. The truth is, most of us live our lives trying to fill the wax in the crevices that have formed. I mean, one of the defining moments in any dating relationship is the first time you see somebody without their makeup on. Because after all, isn't makeup really just facial deception? It's designed to deceive other people, right? To make your eyes look bigger, your lips look fuller, your nose look nosier, I don't know. It's to hide blemishes and flaws and such. And most of us find ourselves in lives living with a mask on. It doesn't have to be just females that wear makeup. We, we wear masks. We're, we, we're much more calculating than we would like to be. We find ourselves working hard to manage what somebody thinks of us or tell a story that makes us sound brighter or smarter or stronger than we really are. Or just goofy stuff like when we're around somebody important, we almost agree with them more than we might, but they weren't important. We have too much makeup, too much wax. And that's why this kind of community where we see these people giving whatever they needed, being sincere with one another. There's a fascinating passage in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, a second letter to the Corinthians. And it tells a story about Moses. And some of you remember the story in the Old Testament when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and when he comes down, his face is glowing because he's been with the Lord. Now, even in our day, when people are really excited, we say their faces will beam or shine. People always use that adjective to talk about brides, right? She looked radiant today. Now, they never say that about the groom because nobody cares what the groom looked like. But they say it about the bride. Well, Moses' face was in radiant and it impressed people. And they said, man, he is a spiritual guy. Look, he has been with the Lord. The word said, Moses has got a shiny face. And they looked at him and they said, wow, look at Moses. Then one morning Moses looked up and his face wasn't as shiny. And 
someone tells him it's not as shiny and it starts to fade. He knows that if people were to see this, they would be less impressed. He wouldn't be so special. They wouldn't say, wow. So the text says Moses put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing while the radiance was gone. He wanted them to think. This is Moses. He wanted them to think he was more spiritual than he was because his face was shining. So he walked around with a mask. We don't know how long he wore it. We don't know when he finally decided to take it off. Somebody, one pastor has surmised that it was probably when his wife said, take that silly veil off, Moses. Whatever prompted it, he did take it off. And what a relief that must have been just to be Moses. Paul then ends that little short story in 2 Corinthians 3 saying, Since we have the promise of God's love and acceptance through what Jesus has done for us, we can live with unveiled faces. No hiding, no more wax, no more makeup. We can just say this is who we are. This is who I am. Take it or leave it. And I am willing to accept who you are. We can be bold. With unveiled faces, we reflect God's glory. The only way you can reflect it is with an unveiled face. A great church is a place where it is safe to be you, to respond as God has called you to respond. Now, in one sense, I'll just be real honest with you, that doesn't happen in here. It just can't. There are too many of us in here. But where it happens is in the Sunday school classes that follow this, where you can just be real with one another sincere, without wax, without makeup, without trying to fill in those crevices, just being real. Some of you in this room have found that. Some of your Sunday school classes are that. Some of you are part of a Sunday school class that is not. I would tell you, don't settle for a place where you can't be sincere. On Sunday nights, we've been going in depth in some of the discussions that we've had about topics we talk about on Sunday morning. Last Sunday night, we had a small group here. We gathered around, we talked about worship, and we were talking about worship. And we weren't intending to get into this sincerity issue or any of those kind of things. And we ended up talking about needing and wanting a movement from the Lord. And somebody saying, just in general, you know, there are times when I feel the Lord moving in my heart. In worship, for instance. And I don't want to go down front because I'm worried about what other people will say. You know what was a little sad for me is that suddenly four or five other people joined in with the same thought. Now, here's what's sad. It's not sad to me that they feel that way. What's sad to me is that we've created an environment as a church body that would allow people to feel that way. Where else in the world should people be able to follow the Lord's leading without us trying to surmise what in the world's going on in their lives and talking to everybody else about it? Now, part of that is on us to give ourselves completely to one another and just say, I don't care. And if that group of people over there says, well, well, the Lord preached, Lyle preached on sin this morning. The Lord spoke to that person's heart. They must have some major sin in their life if they're going down front. Instead of that, saying, "We, we are walking with you with our cracks and scars exposed with sincerity 
we want to walk together in this life. And those kind of groups, people don't use humor to hide behind or get a little jab in. They share openly and honestly. They speak the truth in love. Reality is always our friend, but we avoid it. And in those kind of places, they speak the truth in love. Jesus would do that to his disciples. There was a point when they were walking down the road in Mark chapter 9, and Jesus just turns to them and says, what are you all arguing about? And the text tells us they were arguing about who was going to be the greatest. But nobody's going to tell Jesus that. So what are you all talking about back there? You know, I can imagine them going through their mind, well, why don't we... I don't know. We're, who, who's going to be the next Tennessee basketball coach? I, I don't know. Ten, boy, did you see Kentucky win the other night? Well, this weather is crazy, isn't it? Nobody's going to say, well, Jesus, we were just sitting back here wondering who's the greatest out of all us. Won't you tell us? Jesus didn't need to say anymore, though, because he just turns to him and says, what in the world are you arguing about? There's that point where Peter and Paul kind of get after each other a little bit. Peter gets off course a little bit. He starts playing different roles in different scenarios. And Paul says, I confronted him face to face. They held each other accountable. And in real great churches, small groups of people sincerely hold each other accountable. And here's the last thing. In great churches, they have a mission beyond itself. What we see in this fellowship of believers is as they were doing this, people outside were going, wow, look at them. They know the song we sang. They know we are Christians by our love. These people love each other. They care about each other. There's something different in them. Throughout Acts, we see people curious about what's going on because of the fellowship of the believers. Not curious about what's going on because it makes a good news story when the church is divisive, but curious about what's going on because the Lord is doing something amazing in their lives. And yet the whole point of this comes at the end of verse 47, and it says, the Lord Lord added to their number daily. Part of the be with plan that Jesus taught them is that we are to be with one another, but we are never to be satisfied with the fact that this is all we've got. Ed Stetzer, who writes for Lifeway about church growth, says one of the biggest detriments to the life of a church growing is the us for and no more syndrome. The fact that we get in groups and we think, boy, we've got a great Sunday school class. Let's just keep it. Let's hope it stays like this always. Well, the point of being a believer in Jesus Christ is that our goal should never to stay like this always. It should be to grow and expand and reach and help. Jeff mentioned this church has got an amazing group of people that are working in all kinds of various ministries and missions. But the point of all of that is that we are a church journeying together towards the mission that God has accomplished and wanting to accomplish in our lives. It is about the fact that we are on a journey together as a congregation. And what needs to happen in a great church is that even though we've got people in all kinds of ministries, all kinds of mission endeavors, is that we never consider one mission endeavor or one ministry more important than any other. And that we are together going. When we send a group to Lynch, Kentucky here in a few days, a couple of weeks, it's not the Lynch group going to Lynch, Kentucky. It is First Baptist Church of Goodlettsville partnering together to go to Lynch, Kentucky to impact the people of that community for the Lord. 
When we send in the month of June a group of people to Porto Seguro, Brazil, it is not the Brazil team going to Porto Seguro. It is the church of First Baptist Goodlettsville sending out representatives doing the work of the Lord internationally as we have been called to do. When we send out a group in late July to New York City, it is not the New York City mission team. It is First Baptist Church Goodlettsville sending them out. When we do Meals on Wheels every week in this church, tirelessly helping people in this community that are in need of a meal, it is not the Meals on Wheels ministry team doing that. It is First Baptist Church Goodlettsville partnering together. And that means if you get called upon by room at the end to help in some way that you weren't scheduled to help and you can help, that you are a part of that team with them. It's not separate. It is unifying. And what has to happen is as church, we have to get the vision that our one purpose that ought to supersede others is that we ought to be on mission in glorifying the Lord and telling others about who He is and asking them if they have a relationship with the Lord God Almighty. Because that was what was driving the first church. It wasn't keeping programs going or the lights on. It was spreading the kingdom of God. Now, the truth is, a great church is a church where every member is involved in spreading the kingdom of God. Every member. Can you even imagine what it would have been like if in that first church somebody had stood up and said, Peter... What y'all are doing is great. I'm glad y'all are going out telling people about Jesus. I, that's just not what I'm about. Man, man, John, y'all are doing a great job going out there risking your lives. We're just going to stay right here and we're going to support you. Glad y'all are out there doing that. It's unfathomable to think that. Part of being a great community, being a great church, is that we constantly seek to move forward into what God's called us to do. I believe that when Jesus calls us into Himself, He calls us to a lot of things. But one of the primary things He calls us to is to be a part of a group of people who are challenging us without wax, being sincere with one another and motivating us to follow the Lord more closely. And the question is, are you a part of that? I'm not asking if you're a member of a Sunday school class because most of you in this room are. Some of you are not. I'm asking in your Sunday school class, in your small group, are you with sincerity living for the Lord?